Hi, it's Fraser Myers here. Before we get into this week's Brendan O'Neill show, I just wanted to let you know about a hugely exciting development. The Spiked Podcast, our weekly Spiked show, hosted by myself, Tom Slater and Ella Whelan, will now be available on video every week. So if you prefer to watch rather than just listen to your podcasts, you can catch new episodes of the Spiked Podcast on the Spiked YouTube channel or on the Spiked website every Friday. So that's the Spiked Podcast every Friday on the Spiked YouTube channel or on our website at spiked-online.com. Now, on to the Brendan O'Neill Show. In America, they've got culture wars, no question. But in Britain, we've had not have a culture war. We've had a culture rout, a culture collapse, a culture surrender. I mean, there was never a fight. There was never a fight. We just all keeled over because there was nothing there because we got rid of the idea that there were values that we knew in ourselves were really worth hanging on to. We really knew that we were decent people, basically. We don't know that anymore. On the contrary, we actually kind of believe that we're really wicked people. It's not a cultural war, it's a cultural meltdown that I think we're living through. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Melanie Phillips. Melanie is one of Britain's best-known commentators. She is a journalist, author and broadcaster. She has written for a variety of newspapers, starting her career at The Guardian and later writing columns for The Mail and The Times. She is also a regular panellist on The Moral Maze on Radio 4. She is the author of numerous books, including The World Turned Upside Down, The Global Battle Over God, Truth and Power, and Guardian Angel, My Journey from Leftism to Sanity. She also has her own Substack at melaniephillips.substack.com. So, Melanie, I want to talk to you about the disarray of the Western world, a, a rather <laughs> cheery topic. Um, and I really want to dig down into this with you because you've written about these issues extensively for a long period of time. And I thought a nice way into it would be to talk about something that's happening at the moment while we're recording this conversation, which is that we have the Olympics in Tokyo and we've just had Laurel Hubbard competing in the women's weightlifting. And it's been rather an extraordinary spectacle. Firstly, because Laurel Hubbard crashed out, which not many people expected, the women turned out to be better. Um, But also uh, because of the discussion around it. And we have a situation now where anyone who points out that Laurel Hubbard is male is referred to as a bigot. We had BBC Sport, you know, a part of the actual public broadcaster threatening to block people who said that Laurel Hubbard is male. That's a form of bigotry. That's a form of transphobia. So we have reached a situation where speaking the truth is now treated as bigotry. Expressing scientific facts is now something that could find you reprimanded by the public broadcaster. So as a way into lots of the issues I want to tease out with you, what have you made of this particular situation? And how do you think we got to this area where a man must be referred to as a woman? Well, there are many aspects to it, which strike me as interesting and alarming. But The fundamental reason why we got into this absurd situation is that it's a kind of reductio ad absurdum 
of the governing principle of subjectivity and relativism, which has been the kind of moral and political orthodoxy uh, for at least four decades. Mm. And by, by that I mean that, you know, we have been taught over these years that there is no such thing as objectivity, no such thing as objective truth, that everyone's truth is the same value as everyone else's truth, and that therefore we have negated the distinction between truth and opinion, between subjectivity and objectivity. We can all make it up as we go along. There can be mm. no hierarchy uh, of values. My lifestyle cannot be deemed any better or worse than your lifestyle. Uh, my culture can't be deemed any better or worse than your culture. We've flattened everything in the interests of what we call equality, but in my view, it's not equality at all. It's a kind mm. of uh, egalit- a kind of radical egalitarianism, which seeks to flatten the differences between us. Now, in my book, one of the things that makes us human is that we are all individuals. We are all different from each other, and there is nothing to be frightened about in terms of accepting the differences. Within those differences, we have categories, and one of the categories is sexual categories, which are based on biology, uh, which are settled facts. And that's why we have men and we have women. Now, I don't for a moment uh, think that if anybody wants to call themselves whatever they want, they should have a right to do that. I mean, I, I think that's their perfect right. They do not have the right to prevent me from calling them what I want to call them, mm-hmm. if it corresponds with what has been accepted as the fundamental characteristics of humanity since time immemorial. They, no one has the right to expect the codes of um, normative behavior mm-hmm. uh, and the codes of fundamental biological reality to be rewritten on the grounds that everybody has the right to rewrite them. This is what I could call the reductio ad absurdum of the culture of extreme relativism and subjectivity. And so we have this extraordinary situation in which, as you say, um, it's now um, a hanging offence to say that there are men and there are women. One of the reasons I wanted to kick off with this subject in particular was not just because of Laurel Hubbard, although that's an interesting story, but also because it strikes me that the transgender ideology and, as you well describe it, the the things that precede it, which is the cult of relativism and the uh, destruction of objectivity in favour of validating all identities and validating all cultures. Um, but it strikes me that the transgender ideology is uh, undermines some of the very building blocks of society. So a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss today, I think, um, take a real hammer to some of the important principles and ideas and traditions of of life in the West. But the transgender ideology in particular seems to undercut the very foundation stones of that, the idea that there are men and women, the idea that there are mothers and fathers, the fact that these words have enormous meaning to people in their lives and in their communities, the fact that young people, in particular children, are socialized into the world by thinking often in these binary terms, who their mother is, who their father is, the kinds of roles they play, which are not uniform, of course, but they uh, there are specific aspects to that. 
And the transgender ideology seems sometimes almost designed, I don't think it's a conspiracy by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it seems almost designed to push aside all of that stuff and to really tear away at what people would consider to be the starting point of community life. So is that one of the things that worries you, the way in which this undermines not simply uh, biological facts, which are incredibly important, but also the relationships between men and women, mothers and children, and all those other things that is what makes our society work? Well, indeed, and I've, as you kindly said, um, I'm so old, you see, I've written about this for so long. Um, (laughs) But I wrote about all this... In the, whenever it was, 1990s, uh, perhaps too early. Yeah. I think the 1990s. I didn't write about transgender. We didn't know that term then, but I did write about androgyny, uh, because mm-hmm. it seemed to me that what was coming out of the women's movement, uh, was androgyny. Uh, and of course, now the women's movement or parts of it is at loggerheads over this, because of course, what this has done is to negate the very idea of women and undo, you know, decades and centuries of the attempt to get uh, liberation for women and equality for women. Um, so that's an irony. Yeah. Uh, but the, the androgyny thing has been very prevalent. And in fact, I have traced it back, in fact, to the wilder fringes of the feminist movement in the 19th century. There was a significant, small but significant current among those uh, feminist pioneers who were fighting against the, the enslavement of women, fighting for the vote and fighting for women's participation in public life. There was a very significant element of that, which said we have to negate completely mm. the idea of men and women because we have to negate the idea of men. And they came up with these fantastic ideas, some of them, about asexual reproduction. I mean, like, one read this 30 years ago, and one thought, you know, I thought, these people were completely mad. They were insane. And here we are. <laughs> uh, we've adopted it as the kind of orthodoxy which is now being enforced. So I'm certainly worried about what it does to the relations between men and women. This idea of complementarity which in my view is part of being human, this idea that we are made by male bits and female bits, and the two are complementary and they need to coalesce to make us. And if we, if we undermine that, then we're undermining what it is to be a human being. That doesn't just interfere potentially with the relations between men and women, which I think have gone up the spout for a long time, the, 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 the sexual contract which obtained between men and women, uh, which we can talk about, but it's quite a complicated thing to unpick. But that sexual contract was, you know, thrown up in the air as a result of the women's movement and the idea that, you know, uh, men were a complete waste of space, as Sue Slipman wrote years and years ago in a pamphlet, and whenever it was, in the 80s or the 90s, she wrote a pamphlet entitled, Would You Take One Home With You? Mm-hmm. And the one was a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like a hatred of men, which, which you know, produced all of that. So I've been concerned for a long time that upending the relationship between men and women has untold inadvertent consequences for the welfare of children in particular, but also the welfare of men and the welfare of women, who I think have been put at much, much greater risk. And I'm not for a moment denying that they are not at risk. They weren't at risk from, you know, the traditional sexual contract, but nevertheless, they are more at risk now. However, I'm much more concerned even than the upending of the relationships between men and women by the upending of what it is to be a human being. Yeah. Because I think this is all also part of the, the unraveling, which has been going on, I would say, well, you could say it's 
you know, you can, how far do you want to trace it back? I mean, I can trace it back to the Enlightenment. But I would put as my more recent significant marker, the Second World War on the Holocaust, because I think that that did something absolutely terrible to the Western world's idea of itself. You know, here was the Holocaust, which took place not in some benighted part of the world, which nobody had ever heard of. It took place in the absolute epicenter of mm. high Western European culture. And there was definitely a movement of thought which said, look, if this is what the best of us does, then it's absolutely dreadful and we have to overturn it. And out of that came a very significant, uh, a very discreet and very overt movement of thought known as the Frankfurt School, which said we have to undo modernity and we have to undo all of that. And out of that came the undoing of reason and the desire to knock humanity itself off its perch. And out of that has come you know, the deep environmental movement, this idea that, mm. you know, it is wrong to say there's a hierarchy of species. It's wrong to say that human beings have any moral status that should be considered superior to animals. And, you know, if you protest about this, you're immediately accused of being, of, of advocating cruelty to animals. And nothing can be further from the truth. We all have an absolute duty uh, to be to be careful about animal welfare. We have a duty to steward the earth. But we also have a duty to uphold the primacy of humanity over the inanimate world and the animal world. Because mm. if we don't uphold the primacy of humanity, then we will turn on each other with unparalleled barbarism and brutality. If we if, if we no longer think that there is something about humanity which requires a particular level of innate respect for every human being, then it's over. And that's where we're going. This is all part of the unraveling of that idea that there is any kind of hierarchy, which I think comes out of a deep, deep demoralization in every sense, demoralization as well as demoralization, about progress, about modernity, about the place of reason, you know, it's like, look where that got us. Mm, mm. And so, I mean, it's more complicated than that, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm reducing this to far too a, a simplistic an analysis, but I think that this is a very important element of it. And so the whole, I, I see the whole transgender thing in that context. And that's why it frightens me so much. I think that's a very, very good outline of, of the problems that we face. And I want to come back to the question of the Holocaust and, and the hatreds that fueled it and the fact that they still exist in various different forms today, because that's one of the most important areas of your writing, in, in my view. Uh, but just to stick with the, the, this particular question for the time being, you touched on something there that I think is very important and very and often very misunderstood, which is that if you were to arrive from space right now, you would think that in the UK in particular, there is a very uh, clear battle line between transgender activists on one side and uh, fairly traditional feminists on the other. And they argue to and fro all the time, one defending the right of men essentially to access any space they want to, and the feminists arguing in favour of women's sex-based rights. I think lots of those feminists make very good arguments. I think their willingness to stand up to cancel culture is very admirable. I think that, that very good books are coming out of that movement, that so-called turf movement. So I think there's lots of good stuff going on there. But you touched on something important, which is that in some ways, the ideology of transgenderism can be seen as 
a possibly unwitting consequence of contemporary feminism, especially in relation to gender deconstructionism and the deconstructing of gender roles and anti-male attitudes, which were very pronounced in feminism in the 70s and the 80s. So to what extent do you think that the gender critical feminists are fighting a losing battle? Or maybe a better way of putting it is if, if they are victorious over the more shrill wing of the trans lobby, that possibly won't resolve the problems we face because feminism contained lots of these contradictions in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure they're fighting a losing battle. They may be. I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't like to put money on it either way. If they were to win, I don't think they understand at all and are not prepared to acknowledge at all that they have unwittingly ceded this. You know, it's an old saw, but it's nevertheless true. The revolution eats its own. Mm-hmm. And they set in train a very profound revolution about gender roles, not sexual roles, gender roles. And they didn't realize that that would bleed over into denying sexual difference. Uh, but of course it has. But, you know, I mean, this is why I wrote about androgyny all those years ago, because we were getting, you know, feminists, not all feminists, I mean, but a particular type of feminist um, who said, we can do it all ourselves, mm. everything. We don't need a man at all. You know, would you take one home with you? All we need, I mean, I think I coined a phrase, men were needed as sperm donors, walking wallets and occasional au pairs. That was it. Everything else we could do as women. Mm. Um, you know, we would have, and it, 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 not only could we do it, it was our right to do it. It was our right to bring a child into the world without even knowledge of his fa- his or her father. Unfortunately, you needed the gay meats of a man. Mm-hmm. But that was it. <laughs> and so, and, and, and the whole idea of masculinity was written out the script. Masculinity became toxic. You know, what was masculinity? Well, it was associated with all these terrible things, like violence and war and, 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 and aggression, as if women weren't aggressive, for goodness sake. And it didn't for a moment except that there were particular traits associated with masculinity uh, which were valuable and were complementary. So for sure, how I used to describe it as, as you know, man-hating feminism laid the groundwork for all of this. So if we were to go, if, 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 if the whole trans thing were to be resolved and the, the criti- gender-critical feminists were to win, what would we go back to? Well, okay, we would have laid to rest this very profound insanity, which is undoing what it is to be human. But the relations between men and women would still be, in my view, deeply problematic because this idea that women can do it all is not true. Um, and not only is it not true, it denigrates men to an extraordinary degree, almost by definition. And in, in my view, you can't have a progressive movement of thought which is based on hatred at all. Mm-hmm. That obviates it as a progressive movement. There is something fundamentally wrong with that. It has to be based all the time on, you know, enabling and accelerating the good in people. And you have to see the good in all kinds of people. And so that's again what troubles me. And I, you know, I, I watch these this 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 titanic fight within feminism that's going on. And I, I'm afraid I watch it with a somewhat jaundiced eye, uh, because on the one hand, 
for sure, I don't want the whole sort of transgender philosophy to win because it seems to me a species of insanity, literally a repudiation of reality and reason. On the other hand, a clear win for gender-critical feminism wouldn't necessarily take us to a place which I think we should be at. I want to tell you about Spike Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks. From now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to live events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spike Supporters account. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. Regular donors who already give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are already eligible to join Spike supporters. And if you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and set up your Spike supporters account. Thank you all from everyone at Spiked. Okay, so you mentioned there something that I want to, that brings us on to the next part of the conversation, I think, which is a movement based on hatred and a very self-conscious form of moral distinction and uh, looking down your nose at other groups. That That is, by definition, not a progressive movement. And I want to ask you about something you've written about at length, which is Black Lives Matter and the broader issue of identity politics. And one thing that has struck me, and I'm sure it's struck many other people too, is the extraordinary difference between the civil rights movements of the 1950s and the 1960s and the kind of identitarian movements we have today, and particularly on an issue like hatred, hatred for your enemy, hatred for your opponent, which is certainly was not at the forefront of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and in fact, often quite the opposite. Love your enemy, listen to your enemy, speak to them, engage with them. Uh, But now you have these identitarian movements that are driven not simply by a desire to valorize one particular identity, but by extension to demonize and dehumanize other identities. And one good example of of this, which uh, uh, there's a few examples I want to talk to you about, but one example that you've written about is the, the hatred for white people that is very often written into these new forms of identity politics. So the idea that if you're born white, you're born with some kind of original sin, you must self-flagellate for your privilege. We have these ridiculous people like Robin D'Angelo, who uh, expresses this white shame and gets paid an extraordinary amount of money for her white shame and for for trying to put that white shame onto other people as well. And um, how destructive do you think these kinds of movements are and what can we do to push back against them without falling into the trap that some on the alt-right have fallen into, which is to say, well, actually, whiteness is the best thing of all time. So it's that difficult thing of wanting to push back against anti-whiteness without falling into the ridiculous trap of white pride, which has its own clear dangers. Well, how you push back against it is extraordinarily difficult. You're absolutely right that this is absolutely nothing to do with the anti-prejudice movements associated with Martin Luther King, 
famously, you know, he said, you know, you must judge people by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And here we are having uh, a, a situation in which unless you judge people by the color of their skin and say, because it is white, they are fundamentally flawed and evil and have to renounce their whiteness, we've turned this completely on its on its head. And we have a profoundly racist movement, which is Black Lives Matter, mm. uh, which, you know, you, you, you can't get a greater, a more clear-cut example of serious racial prejudice than demonizing an entire group of people on the basis of the color of their skin and say that, you know, because of this, of, of that, they are responsible for colonialism and so on and so forth and must, you know, must renounce that all. And furthermore, that, that basically tells a, a fantastic series of lies about history and distortions in which white people are blamed alone for colonialism, uh, for example, and racism, whereas as we were, and slavery. Mm. Whereas as anyone who has half a brain can see, uh, slavery and colonialism go across cultures and across time periods. And in fact, it was, you know, the Western world led by Britain uh, which actually ended the practice of slavery. Of course, Britain was complicit in that. Of course, it was, you know, as part of its empirical em- empire and colonial activities, it was part of the slave trade, but it got rid of it. And the slave trade, you know, preceded it really across across the world uh, for centuries before that and continues today in those parts of the world which are not the West. So the whole thing is based on hatred and lies and resentment and it's a terrifying situation because you know you have a not only do you have a, a large number of ethnic minority individuals who subscribe to this although i have to say i think a, probably a very large number of them do not subscribe mm. to it but we don't hear from them because it's so you know you pay such a terrible price mm. but what is really terrifying is that people who really should know better and who are in a position to turn this back are not doing so. They're going along with it. So you have, you know, commercial companies, for goodness mm. sake, who are putting their employees through a kind of Soviet style, here comes the Spanish Inquisition style ritual purging of their original sin. Yeah. Uh, which is just astounding that these people are doing it. All these university vice chancellors who are going along with it. Now, how do we turn this back? There's only one way you turn it back. All those people have to stand up and say, we're not having it. It yeah. is a lie. You are the racists. We are not having it. Draw the line. You know, you are not going to get funded. You are not going to get employed. You know, draw the line. You're not going to disemploy me on the basis that I don't adhere to your racist behavior. I will not put up with that bullying and racist intimidation and Orwellian, you know, reversal of the truth. If you have, you know, ha ha ha, Boris Johnson saying that, if you had, you know, the Labour Party saying it, if you had the universities saying it, mm. if you had people who run the arts saying mm. it, you would turn it round instantly. But these people are getting away with it because nobody's calling them out for what they are. Nobody is actually saying, far from being progressive, you are reactionary and racist. 
Now that's what has to be said. Now I know what happens when you call people at when they when it's true, you get called a racist. So this is very unpleasant and it has consequences, but there there is safety in numbers. If you expect individuals to do it, they just get picked off and they are getting picked off. But if you have a concerted um, attempt uh, by the people who lead the culture, then it's a different matter. Now, that's how you do it. That's the only way you do it. But there is absolutely no sign of this whatsoever. So this is the problem. I think that's a, a very important point, which is that I would argue that the the larger dynamic of this problem is the institutional cowardice and the unwillingness of institutions to stand up to these movements. So it it can often look like Black Lives Matter is a very powerful movement, a very influential movement. And of course, it is an extraordinary global brand. And it's it's kind of uh, the great irony of Black Lives Matter is that it's one of American capitalism's most successful exports of recent years, promoted by the social media oligarchs and influencers and celebrities and so on. But I think the the bigger problem, especially in the UK context, has been the unwillingness of institutions to hold the line and to say, well, we're not going to do what you tell us to do. So I wanted to ask you about the extraordinary situation we have found ourselves in over the past year, but also for much longer than that, which is that you have institutions like the National Trust, uh, the British Museum, the British Library, as you say, universities, all of them willingly expressing a sense of self-hatred and self-loathing and hiding away certain artifacts or expressing shame about their founders or their history. And so I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think that we're currently living through a kind of neo-Maoist revolt against the gains and the traditions of, of Western culture, or that simply Western culture has lost confidence in itself and is kind of dismantling itself or is it a mix of those two things? It is a mix. I think certainly um, loss of confidence is terribly important. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at all those institutions that are, you know, just just basically literally genuflecting to Black Lives Matter, yeah. <laughs> part of it is simple cowardice. You know, what's you know they they would lose too much. So you can understand that, reprehensible as it may be, you can understand that. That's perfectly comprehensible. But I think it's more than just cowardice. You see, a lot of these people, I guess, and I haven't really talked to them, so I'm, this is my speculation. But a lot of them are people who've come through an education system, which for three or four decades has basically hammered home this idea that Western civilization was born in sin. It was born in colonialism. It didn't have anything before empire that was worth talking about. And it's basically white and it's basically racist. They've been taught a Marxist view of the world, which is constructed entirely in terms of power relations. Um, and power is defined by people who have money and have control. And if those people are white, then, then white people have money and power and control and therefore they are evil. That's basically what people have been taught for, well, I've been writing about it for more than 30 years. And so it's not surprising. They actually think this themselves. Yeah. And even if there is a part of them that says, you know, this is, this is just like possibly not quite right. There is also a part of them, which is, you know, it's, it's the decent part of people, which is very, very concerned. It knows that, you know, people, ethnic minorities, black people have had a raw deal in many respects. They know that there is, that there is something called racism, which is really bad. They know that ethnic minorities are the victims of this racism and have been for endless years. 
and they want to do something about it. And consequently, when a movement like this starts, it's it's really hard for people who are decently motivated to say to themselves, well, this is complete rubbish. Mm. Actually, they are the racists. You've got to be really self-confident to be able to do that. And I, when I say self-confident, I don't mean, you know, confident in yourself as a as an individual. What I mean is confident in your set of values. Mm. You've got to really understand and believe that your values are good. And we've had that collectively beaten out of us. Now, at the root of all this is something which I'm, I expect you would find hard to take, and a lot of people are finding hard to take. But it comes of, I mean, this is, this is exactly what Nietzsche saw in his tragic vision, as it were, of what happens when a society gets rid of God. Now, I'm not arguing the case for God. That's another matter. I'm just saying, this is what happens when you dethrone God and put man in its, in its, in, in his place because it doesn't work. And man is, you know, if there is nothing beyond man to, to hang on to, then there is no reason why you have to have any innate respect for anybody else. And the whole thing then starts to unravel. And then you start fighting among yourselves. And it's simply a question of who wins of the most powerful group winning. And, you know, who is the most powerful group? Well, that depends on a whole number of cultural and sociological factors, which we're talking about. But basically, it, it, it devolves upon a, a power thing. You know, the strong win and the weak go to the wall. Mm-hmm. And the weak may be the people who are saying, actually, I think there was something rather good about the West and quite good about the rule of reason and quite good about uh, believing in putting other people before yourself and quite good about the idea there's such a thing as objective truth, actually. Uh, they're weak because they've got nothing to hang on to. I mean, who, who speaks for them? No one. In England, in Britain, the Church of England is leading the charge against all this and has been for decades. So there is no, you know, in Britain, we haven't had a culture war. In America, they've got culture wars. No question. But in Britain, we've hadn't had a culture war. We've had a culture rout, um, a culture collapse, a culture surrender. I mean, there was never a fight. There was never a fight. We just yeah. all keeled over because yeah. there was nothing there because we got rid of the idea that there were values that we knew in ourselves were really worth hanging on to. We really knew that we were decent people, basically. We don't know that anymore. On the contrary, we actually kind of believe that we're really wicked people. Yeah. And so that's the problem. It's not just cowardice. It's a, it's not a cultural war. It's a cultural meltdown that I think we're living through. A cultural rout. I think that's a cultural meltdown. That's a very good way of putting it. And of course, you are one of the canaries in the mind in relation to all of this. You are, you wrote for the Guardian many decades ago and were ousted for raising these kinds of problems in, 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 in terms of how progress is going awry and, and the emergence of these new forms of politics and these new forms of authoritarianism. The point you made there about God versus man, I think this is, that's very interesting and obviously far too grand yeah. and broad a subject for, for one podcast. But the, that actually touches on something I wanted to raise with you because the way I've always understood that conflict between God and man or, or what happens when you chase God out of society, the way I see it is that not only have we had the abolition of God, but also the hollowing out of humanism. So the, the things that would have, um, tied together 
believers in God and humanists in the past was a sense of the specialness of mankind. So the uh, religious believers had a view that mankind was capable of good, capable of great things, uh, had the free will to make those kinds of choices, and for the most part would make those kinds of choices if steered in the right direction. Uh, humanists tended to argue that mankind was also a very special creature, certainly higher than all the others, didn't need God to make these kinds of decisions, but could do it collectively through a, a sense of the human good or the, the collective good or the social good. And so, so there were huge tensions between these two groups, but they were bonded by a sense that there was something very distinctive and important about humankind. What you have now are, is the complete jettisoning of that idea. So you have uh, increasingly uh, the, the Church of England, for example, which does not really look upon mankind in that way at all. And if you look at the way in which the church responded to the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, as just one example, by essentially telling white Christians to repent for their racial sins. Um, and then you have uh, so-called humanists, you know, typified by the new atheists of recent years who who don't believe in God and don't believe in anything and whose view of humankind is basically we're just stardust, we're just so many molecules, we're just bits of DNA we're kind of clever chimpanzees and we're all a bit rubbish and destructive. So that diminishing of mankind, I think, is one of the great problems of our time. And you, you've touched on that. So I wonder if one of the things that ties together lots of the problematic movements of our time, whether it's identity politics, the transgender idea, um, environmentalism, which you've mentioned as well, is this reductive view of human beings as polluters, as bundles of DNA as these fragile, vulnerable creatures in need of constant validation. So do you think one of the problems we face, whether we do it via God or some other form of morality, is that we do need to restore a sense of wonder about humankind and what it is capable of achieving? Yeah, you're not going to like this at all, but you know, the language you use, wonder, this is religious language. Now, the point you make about humanism and I'm going to upset every humanist who's listening to this podcast <laughs> now. Uh, and I've had this argument with, you know, my, my atheist friends who are humanists. They are followers of basically biblical values. Mm. I mean, you can be a, you know, humanists don't do God. Fine. Okay. But don't pretend that your values as a humanist, as an old fashioned humanist, the kind that you're saying is no longer there, but they are there. Don't pretend that your values of respecting every human being and of wonder and some point to everything and compassion and putting people first, don't pretend that those sprang fully formed from your, <laughs> from your infant brain out of nowhere. They came from the Bible mm. mediated through Christianity. Now you can, you know, get rid of God. That's, you know, that's perfectly understandable. You don't do the superstitious stuff. You don't do the, the, the non-material stuff. You don't believe, you know, why should you believe in that? Okay. That's another argument, but don't pretend then that your values aren't drawn from that. But the problem that we now face, which I think is what you're kind of alluding to is that we've gone beyond that generation, as it were, that yeah. coasted on those values, which were in fact biblical values in origin. Uh, we've gone beyond the point at which people say, well, of, of course I believe in those values, but I just don't do God. I mean, how stupid is that as an idea? We've gone beyond that. We don't do those values anymore. 
Those values yeah. are wrong. It is wrong, yeah. we tell ourselves, that human beings should be considered in any way superior to the animal world or even indeed the inanimate world. Um, you know, the planet would be saved tomorrow. It would be all absolutely fine if it weren't for the human race. That's basically what environmentalism is saying. Mm. And so, you know, the poor old humanists have lost their moral anchor because they may not want to admit it, but their moral anchor is in the Bible, mm. whose values made the West what it is. In, in my view, well, it, it gave us science. It gave us the idea that there was an intelligible universe governed by natural laws, which could be interrogated by people given, who, 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 who had the power of reason. And, you know, the early scientists, you know, go back to the Enlightenment and all that, the early scientists, that's what they were. They were Christians and they believed that they were using their God-given faculty of reason to interrogate the God-given universe with its natural laws. That's where science came from. Now, if you upend all of that, you say we're just random, pointless atoms whirling through space, yeah. you may tell yourself that's because you're so rational. <laughs> you don't do this stupid idea of God anymore. But you tell yourself something even more stupid, that something came out of nothing, yeah. which is fundamentally anti-scientific. But basically, you tell yourself that the whole of existence is pointless. Well, if it's pointless, then, you know, we are, then we get to where we've got to. So yeah. in my view, it is all wrapped up with that. It is a very difficult problem. Um, I'm fully aware of why people don't do God anymore. Um, and that's, as you say, another argument for another uh, podcast, possibly lasting the rest of our lives. But anyway. <laughs> I don't disagree with any of that. And I am um, very grateful for the fact that I read the Bible as a child, studied the Bible as a child. And uh, it, it, it becomes very clear as one becomes an adult, that even the humanist values that one might adhere to obviously have their origins in this vast uh, moral structure and this vast moral idea. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Okay, I want to come on to another issue. I think um, one of the bravest positions you take, and it's shocking that this should be described as such, but is in relation to the scourge of anti-Semitism. And it might look like I've just brought that out of the blue, but I think it actually taps into the discussion we've been having about identity politics, the rehabilitation of hate in pseudo-progressive language. All of those kinds of things, I think, reach their nadir in the re-emergence of anti-Semitism or the reformulation of anti-Semitism in new ways. And this is something you've written about a lot. So I want to touch on this in some detail. So one of the things that's most shocked me over the past few months has been during the most recent tensions between Israel and Hamas, we had the most extraordinary explosion of visceral, physical, violent anti-Semitism 
in many places across the West. We saw it in London with people driving through the streets saying rape their daughters, kill their mothers. We saw it with violent assaults in New York and Los Angeles, people chanting death to the Jews in various cities in Europe. And the thing that disturbed me most, firstly, that in itself is obviously deeply disturbing, but the silence from so-called anti-racists, and and sometimes not even silence, but almost a, a cack-handed attempt to justify this kind of thing as being, well, kind of political or kind of understandable. Uh, I think that's probably been one of the most disturbing phenomenon in Western public life over the recent period. So just to start off this discussion, could you just explain to our listeners how you read this new form of anti-Semitism or how you understand it and why you think there is so, so little pushback from those who profess to be anti-racist? This is such a big subject. Mm. The first thing to say is that when you have epidemic out of control anti-Semitism, it's always, in my view, looking back over history, it's a sign that that society is in deep and terminal trouble. It's, you know, it's the canary in the coal mine again. And that's just a fact. You know, a society that's going down turns on its Jews. So that's the first thing. Now, the current manifestation of it is complicated. I say current, but I first came across it personally in 1982, when, when certain things became quite clear to me. First of all, that Jew hatred had morphed from from what it was under the Nazi period, which was basically racially based hatred of the Jews as people. And that itself had been a morphing from a previous theological hatred. And, you know, over the centuries, Jew hatred has undertaken has, has undergone many, many different mm. mutations. <laughs> so it seemed to me this was the latest mutation, that um, this was a hatred of the collective Jew in the state of Israel. Now, well, why do I say that? Why did I think that? Because anti-Semitism isn't simply a form of racism. That's what we've all told ourselves. It's not true. Anti-Semitism is sui generis. It is absolutely unique. It is not simply racial prejudice. It is an, a pathology uh, which is unique in the world because it perceives a group of people, the Jews, to have some sort of cosmic power yeah. Uh, almost a kind of supernatural power over the entire world. It is fundamentally deranged. That's the point of anti-Semitism. Other prejudices are deeply unpleasant. They have terrible consequences, no question. But there is no prejudice like anti-Semitism, which is simply insane. Now, when you look at the West and its behavior towards, its attitude towards Israel, in terms of the Israel bashing, it is insane because mm. it takes every single fact about the Jewish people, their history in the Middle East, the current situation in the Middle East, the immediate past history over the last, over the last century, and it turns it on its head and it, 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 it basically says black is white. Um, and it turns what was originally an attempt by the Arab world to annihilate the Jewish people's return to their ancestral home, it turns that into an attempt by the Jewish people in Israel to annihilate the Palestinian Arabs. And it's based on a fundamental lie, which is that the indigenous people of the land of Israel were Palestinian Arabs, which is clearly insane. And the only extant indigenous people are the Jews. It's not that they were in the Bible. 
It's that they were a nation in what is now the land in the land of Israel. And they are the only people for whom that land was ever their national kingdom. Now, these and other things are a unique package because I can't think of another conflict in which every single aspect of it is turned on its head in this way. But I can't think of another conflict, cause or thing, which is the subject of such obsessional attention. And it's that obsession which is, is, is so remarkable. Now, these and other characteristics, blaming uh, the Jews uh, who are the victims of stuff, blaming them for causing that stuff when they are in fact the victims, seeing them as some sort of cosmic evil which has a unique power to put the rest of the world in danger in their own interests, seeing them as a conspiracy which changes its shape the whole time. So it's their puppeteers behind the scenes. These and other aspects of anti-Semitism which are unique to anti-Semitism and seeing them simultaneously as cosmically powerful and as beneath contempt. Now, these things are particular to anti-Semitism in its traditional forms, and they are particular to the anti-Israel animus. Now, why has this all emerged from the 1980s onwards? Well, in my view, there are two reasons. One is external, one is internal. The external reason is that this was, and it's been documented by people who have left the former Soviet Union's embrace, uh, that this was a, a strategy that was arrived at between Yasser Arafat, who then ran the Palestine Liberation Organization, and the Soviet Union, or aspects of the Soviet Union, in the certainly in the 1960s, they realized they couldn't. The, the Palestinian Arabs realized they couldn't win against Israel by conventional means, and so they decided to basically turn the minds of the West. They understood, and the Soviet Union understood exactly the weakness of the West, its demoralization after the war and the Holocaust. They understood what we can now see has happened in the West. They understood they could use that and the Palestinian Arabs used it. So that was the external bit. And that went through the universities and the universities have seeded the media and so on. And so the whole intellectual structure of the West, its mind has been turned to this extraordinary set of lies, unique, unique in the world. The internal thing is much more difficult and much more unpleasant to unpick. And it's really unpleasant. And I can only speak to my own subjective view of this. I, I can't prove it, but it's based on a number of things that have been said to me that I've picked up, that I've read, that I, and I've thought about this for many, many years uh, from the 80s onwards. You have to explain to yourself the unique venom and the unique obsessional venom and the glee, the glee with which people seize upon every time Israel goes into Gaza to defend itself and against, in the, as you were saying, in the, in the, the un unrest over when it was in June or whenever it was, May, June, you know, there were thousands of rockets being fired in order to murder, mass murder Israelis. This was given virtually no credence at all. But as soon as Israel starts attacking in defense. The glee with which people then seize upon this, at last we have yeah. the Jews committing atrocities. Now, first of all, it wasn't true. In fact, the opposite is true. 
Israel, as was shown in those uh, disturbances and and uh, military operation that it conducted in Gaza eventually, Israel went to and goes to always lengths which no other army in the world goes to, to try to avoid the loss of civilian life. They go to astonishing lengths. This, of course, is given absolutely no credence. So how do we explain this obsessional glee? The, mm. I can only describe it as glee. You can hear it in the voices of the BBC correspondents. You know, it's kicking off. Mm. What's kicking off? The thousands of rockets from Gaza? No, no, that didn't kick off. What's kicking off is the Israelis are going to start killing Arabs again. Now, what explains this glee? I'm afraid I came to the conclusion years ago that the West, that parts of the West, want to be able to hate the Jews again. This was actually said to me in terms. What you don't understand, this person said to me, is that we're so relieved that we don't have to worry about the Jews anymore. And I said, what do you mean we don't have to worry about the Jews anymore? This was back in the 90s. This was a long time ago. I said, what do you mean you don't have to worry about the Jews anymore? This could be anything. And he said, well, what you have to understand is that, you know, after Auschwitz, after the Holocaust was, you know, uncovered in all its terribleness, we just couldn't say anything about Jews, bad. Mm. And now we can again. And it's such a relief. I said, what? This is what Israel is doing for you that, you know, you, you, you can now basically, it's now open season on Jews again. And this is why people, you know, call Jews Nazis. Because if the Jews are Nazis, then the West gets a yeah. get out of jail free card yeah. immediately. Because if the Jews were, are Nazis, then the real Nazis weren't really bad at all. They weren't yeah. any worse than they are. So it's that. And then you have a further dimension, which is the jealousy of the Jews suffering. Yeah. And this is even worse. And it's behind victim culture. And it's why yeah. one of the reasons why um, Jewish suffering, Israeli victimization cannot be anti-Semitism is, is excluded from intersectionality. It's not simply because, well, it, part of that is because intersectionality is fundamentally anti-Semitic in the old sense. They believe that the Jews are powerful. They believe that the Jews run the world. And so consequently, they can't possibly be victims. And they can't be victims in Israel. And in Israel, they have power. They have bombs. They have guns. They have an army. They, you know, they have a powerful military. And so, uh, they can't possibly be, be victims. And so that's part of it. But an even worse part of it is what I've, again, I've heard people say, which is, and it's, it sounds insane and it is insane. They go, you Jews suck up all the victimization yeah. in the world and yeah. leaves none for us. And you think, hang on, first of all, that's barking mad. I mean, you know, th this, the idea that the Holocaust was, you know, qualitatively worse than any other kind of racism sucks up all the victimization in the world. I mean, what is this rubbish? So, so, so certainly it's a, it's a jealousy, but what do they mean? You suck it up. Why are they so worried about it? And then you find, then you find the other bit of this, which is because you have this, which you say is unique thing of anti-Semitism, which is so much worse than any other kind of awfulness, and it sucks up all the victimization in the world, you Jews get away with it. What do we get away with exactly? Ah, you get away with the fact that you're running the world. Mm. So it's fundamentally founded upon the old, old Jew hatred, whichever way you cut it, however you slice this, whichever way you're coming at it from, it is fundamentally the old Jew hate. Now, why do people hate the Jews? We, the Jewish people, have never got to the bottom of this. There are endless theories. 
all of which have great validity, all of which, you know, can be discussed. There are books written about it. People write about the whole time. Nobody ever gets to the bottom of it. And if you are a religious believer, you know the reason. It's written, it's written in, in the holy book. It's written in the Bible. You dwell alone. You dwell alone. You are not to be counted among the nations. It's there. So if you're a religious believer, that's what you think. But the empirical reality is that that is true. Every generation finds its own way of not just hating Jews, but trying to wipe them out of the human experience. That's why it's unique. And it's a terrible thing that, you know, we're now living through the latest manifestation of this. And like so many of the other things we're describing uh, in terms of what's called the culture wars, if one speaks about this in the terms that I'm speaking about, then immediately, just like, you know, on the transgender thing or anti-Black Lives Matter, if you question any of this, you say what I'm saying, you are immediately an extremist. And consequently, everything you say is to be ignored. So you can't get through because, you know, where the, where the anti-Israel person sits is supposedly the middle ground. Mm -hmm. So you have anti-Semitism being described as the middle ground. And that's part and parcel of this overall phenomenon we're talking about. And in my view, you know, I used to think, you know, there was, there was all the stuff about, you know, the, the destruction of the West, education, the family and all that. I was writing about that for, you know, for the Guardian and then the Sunday Times and then the Daily Mail and now the Times. And that was in one box. In the other box was, you know, Jews and my Jewish identity and anti-Semitism. And that was going on at the same time. And it took me quite a long time to realize mm. it's all one story. It's all one story. That's a very good overview of a, a very complex problem and and one of the greatest problems of our time, I think. And I think um, I wanted to push you on the question of the contemporary manifestation of anti-Semitism. So one of the things I've noticed in particular is the extraordinary venom that Jewish women in particular get from woke circles. So if you if you look at the way in which you are taught about, for example, you're a racist, you're an Islamophobe, you're, you're crazy because you raise these problems. You raise the problem of anti-Semitism and, and other prejudices. Uh, Rachel Riley, Margaret Hodge, Luciana Berger. I mean, there is this special venom that is preserved for anyone, in fact, but it seems to be most visceral in relation to Jewish women who dares to talk about their experiences of prejudice or dares to talk about the things they've, they've experienced at the hands of the Corbynista left or the Twitter left or whoever else it might be. And I think um, one of the things, I was really glad you raised that point about jealousy because that does strike me as one of the new forms that anti-Semitism takes. And I wrote a piece a few years ago about Holocaust envy and mm. uh, that was written around the the time that there were some Muslim organisations that were saying that they would not take part in Holocaust Memorial Day mm. unless it also recognised the genocides that have been suffered by Muslims in Srebrenica and, and, uh, or other parts of the world. And uh, I wrote a piece saying, well, you know, we have to be able to make a distinction between these kinds of events. The Holocaust is the greatest crime in human history. These other events are extraordinarily terrible crimes, but they are part and parcel of war and the awful things that happen as part of everyday existence. And I think one of the influences on the contemporary manifestation of anti-Semitism, so there is still the old style 
biological anti-Semitism that is cleaved to by sections of the far right in particular. They're still around. They're still doing their thing. They're still very objectionable. There is the um, transformation of anti-Semitism into the anti-Israel outlook, which has been very pronounced in Europe over the past four decades, where all the things that were traditionally said about the Jews have now been transported into Israel, bloodthirsty, controls the world, yep. puppeteering, all those kinds of things. It's just kind of been swapped over to the Jewish state rather than the Jewish people. But then there's the influence of, I think, of identity politics. Mm -hmm. And you've touched upon this in relation to Black Lives Matter and intersectionality and the problem they have with Jewish people, which is essentially refusing to accept their victim experience, being envious of mm -hmm. it and feeling that it's, you know, they've had a really great deal because, you know, they've had this extraordinary victim experience, the greatest victim experience of the 20th century. And now redefining Jewish people as privileged. Mm. So Jewish privilege, white privilege, and mm. the way in which that then writes off a, a whole community as being in some way problematic or and in some way suspect. So I wonder what role, just to bring it back to some of the things we started out talking about, what role do you think identitarianism and this self-conscious sorting of humankind into privileged boxes or oppressed boxes or good boxes or bad boxes to what extent do you think that has inflamed the isolation of the jews as a particular problem and deserving of opprobrium well it certainly inflamed it um i mean it's flame inflamed everybody who subscribes to those identitarian politics against jewish people which they can conveniently say, you know, it's, we're not against Jews, we're against Israel. But of course, you know, they're simultaneously saying that Jews run everything. Yeah. So, yes, it has certainly inflamed it. But I'm not sure where that gets us. I mean, it, it's part of the inflammation against white Western society, mm. against capitalism, against the West, against modernity, against, uh, against reason. I mean, the, these things are all part of part of the same picture, but it's particularly venomous because where you have ethnic minorities expressing this venom against Jews uh, in either physical or uh, verbal form, it is being airbrushed out of the picture. I mean, in America, it is very noticeable that attacks on, physical attacks on what are mainly ultra-Orthodox Jews are being carried out in large measure, not, not universally, in large measure by black American men. And this is unsayable yeah. in America yeah. because they are black. And consequently, the suffering of those Jewish victims is being literally airbrushed out of the picture. In Britain, if one says, which I believe to be true, as Mehdi Hassan said, anti-Semitism is the Muslim world's dirty little secret, if one says that, if one is a Jew saying that, then you mm. become immediately an Islamophobe, including in the eyes of the Jewish community leadership in Britain, you become an Islamophobe. Because this is another subject entirely, but in Britain, you know, Jewish community leaders have always been on their knees, always. And for understandable reasons, very, very frightened as a community. They have always believed that they're in Britain on sufferance, and they've always tried to be more English than the English as a result, and they have always gone along with the flow to protect themselves, and they are going along with the flow. So in the eyes of the Jewish community leadership in Britain, I am an Islamophobe. And the 
an extremist and I create anti-Semitism. Now, this is the madness that we are living through. So intersectionality has long, you know, long tentacles. Um, and it's certainly in, in America, it's much worse. I mean, you know, 70% of American Jews vote Democrat and subscribe to the intersectionality, the evil of intersectionality. And therefore, you know, they are themselves turning against their own people. That's a tragedy that's being played out in America. But that's an example of how this intersectionality thing isn't just affecting non-Jews about Jews. It's affecting mm. Jews about Jews um, and about Israel. Israel, I have to say, is singularly inept in all of this. It has never understood what it's up against in the West, and it's never really cared. Why doesn't it care? I've had these discussions with them at various levels over the years, and I've kind of given up. They say, what, you think we're ever going to change the, the mindset? What, Europe, the graveyard of our people? What, Britain, after what Britain did to us in Palestine, where they closed the gates of Palestine against the Jews in Nazi Germany and therefore connived at the Holocaust? You think we're ever going to make any inroads? And I say to them, you're wrong. You're wrong because the vast majority of British people are still decent and they are committed to the cardinal British values of fairness belief in law, belief in order, belief in justice. The tragedy is that they think Israel is on the other side of all those things. And you should be telling them and showing them that Israel is on the right side. No, no. Okay, this is Israel's problem. It's always been understandably preoccupied with the actual threat to actual lives, whether from the rockets from Gaza, whether from the, what is it, 150,000 missiles pointing at Israel from the Hezbollah in Lebanon, from Iran busy building its bomb uh, to commit genocide, which it proclaims every minute uh, that it's going to commit against the Jews. So what, Israel's going to be worried about anti-Semitism in this graveyard of the Jewish people? Come off it. So we get absolutely no help from the state of Israel whatsoever. So, you know, it is a very difficult business, uh, to put it mildly. But this is a complicated issue, as mm. I've tried to explain. Mm. It's just like everything else we've been talking about. It basically needs good people to stand up and tell the truth about all these lies. And as soon as that happens, all this is over. It begins to be over. Uh, the battle then is joined and it will be won. The problem is that it's not happening in all these issues that we're talking about. You know, the people who should be taking the battle to the enemy, um, have just either given up or are cowering in their foxholes or agree with it. That's the problem. We can rescue this. Even wretched, the wretched subject of anti-Semitism, the issue of anti-Semitism, which never goes away, but it could be put back under its stone, which is the most that the Jewish people can ever expect. It could be. But for that, you have to have leadership. You have to have cultural and political leadership of which there is none. That nicely takes me on to my final question for you, because you've touched there upon one of the things that is said about anyone who raises difficult questions, they will often be referred to as phobic. So if you talk about problems in the Muslim world or the problem of Islamic terrorism or anything else like that, you'll be called Islamophobic. Uh, the issue we started on, if you state biological truths, you'll be called transphobic. Yep. 
if you are a Christian or a Muslim, in fact, who has an issue with same-sex marriage, you are homophobic. And so there are all these terms that are wielded to depict certain points of view and certain moral convictions as unacceptable, worthy of censure, should get you no platformed. And, and that all speaks to the broader problem of cancel culture, an issue you will be familiar with. I've lost count of the number of attempts that have been made to cancel you. You're still here, you're still talking, you're still writing, and you're still, still saying what you consider to be important. So in terms of that positive message you've just made, which is that it is possible to turn these things around, it is possible even to diminish the influences of anti-Semitism. How important do you think standing up for freedom of speech is to that project and and facing down cancellation yeah. as this very cynical response to anyone who raises the kind of questions that you do? Yeah, I'm definitely not in favour of cancel culture. It becomes very difficult when one's looking at anti-Semitism on campus. And there is a line to be drawn between um, incitement and free speech. And there always has been a line. And it's difficult. Sometimes it's a grey line. I'm not one of these people who thinks that one should ban anti-Israel speakers from campus. I don't think that. I think that, you know, openness is the best disinfectant. The problem, however, is that you don't have people standing up against it, yeah. partly because the platforms aren't there. You know, the university won't make a platform available for the alternative point of view to be put. The BBC and other broadcasters uh, will tolerate someone like me as the sort of acceptable face and voice of extremism as they see it. But heaven forbid they should give me a program of yeah. my own in which I can talk about these things. <gasps> That's, so there are no platforms. That's one mm. of the problems. And the other problem is that people are too frightened to stand up and do all this. So it always strikes me in my little way, when I put out just on the subject of Israel, since we were talking about it, because there are such easily demonstrable truths to be told to show the monumental monstrosity of the big lies that are being told. I've been very struck when I've done this by the reaction I get. It's like, what? You're kidding. No one's told us that, that before. I've never heard that. Why aren't I reading that? That's the problem. If it was possible to get this into the public domain, mm -hmm. at the very least, there would be the beginning of a row. People would say, what? That can't be true. And then other people would say, well, of course it's not true. There's this and that. And then you have people saying, well, no, this is the evidence. Because I do, I mean, I may be naive, but I do believe that if you, if you're standing for truth and reality, ultimately that wins. The mm. problem is you've got to make the case. So to me, the answer is not to suppress, never to suppress, except in certain circumstances where it's literal incitement and you're making a situation physically dangerous or not even physically dangerous, but you're creating a climate of intimidation on campus. Uh, for certain students. Now that's, that cannot possibly be upheld by any, by any standards. I mean, freedom of speech is not an absolute. It is always limited by the harm that is done. But beyond that, I would say, you know, let it rip, but it's got to rip. It's got to, it, you, mm -hmm. you've got to have the people standing up and putting all this stuff into the public domain that can show the extent of the lies, the insanity, the, the nonsense. You've got to have people standing up in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and the gender stuff. You've got people standing up and doing to that side 
of the argument, what they do to us, but they do it to us with lies and vilification and character assassination. We should do it with truth and reality and basically say, you know, these people are supposedly anti-racist. These, you know, vice chancellors are supposedly anti-racist. They are racist. They are racist. They are upholding the demonization of the entire white world. Cannot be a more, I mean, there cannot be a more racist position than that. Because the left has an Achilles heel, which people really don't understand. It is such a prominent Achilles heel. And having worked at The Guardian for nearly 20 years, I, you know, that heel is in my, front of my face the whole time. <laughs> the Achilles heel is that they do not care about the issues they supposedly care about. They do not care about the victims they supposedly care about. What do they care about? One thing alone. They care about their own image of, as, as people of unalloyed virtue and goodness mm. to themselves and to others. That is their Achilles heel. If you can show that they are actually not what they say they are, that they are the opposite of what they say they are. They are against freedom of expression and speech. They are against liberty. They are against justice. They are for racism. They are against Jewish people. If you can show all this, then you've got them. Um, and you have to do it in a way which is not name call, and you have to do it forensically. You have to you know, produce the evidence. Now that gets them because they can't deal with this. It destroys their entire moral and political personality. So that's what we should be doing, meeting fire with fire, meeting lies with truth, using the platforms that are available to put reality and reason back into public discourse, and somehow having to cope with the problem that we don't have platforms. And your podcast, my Substack blog, you know, we're, cre we're trying to create our own platforms and some of us are doing better than others. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the opportunity is there. But my goodness, it's an uphill battle. Melanie, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.